I took Neil Gaiman's masterclass on the art of storytelling and in this video I'll be sharing the best lessons I learned from this class and at the very end of the video I'll be sharing my number one takeaway. If you're new to the channel, welcome. My name is Jed Hearn. I'm the author of these fantasy books and this video game and Neil Gaiman is one of my absolute favorite authors. In fact, last year I actually spent seven days following Neil Gaiman's writing routine so he's been a massive source of inspiration to me for a very long time and I was stoked to take his masterclass and it did not disappoint. I'll be breaking my notes for the masterclass into 12 sections with timestamps for each. I think it's awesome when authors can kind of share their learnings like this in order to help other writers with their own careers, which is why I created my very own story coaching program. If you already have some experience as a writer and you're looking for the accountability and feedback necessary to help you finish an excellent novel and get published within the next year, then I have an advanced program where you can work with me one-on-one -on -one to achieve your writing goals. One of my clients, Michael, basically wrote a 30,000 word fantasy novella in the first two weeks that we worked together with a really cool magic system and a really cool sense of world building within it as well. And he's in a very solid place to get that novella published by the end of this year. You really helped me level up past a ceiling that I didn't even know I was at. I think um, helping me get a deeper understanding of my characters and the way my story needed to progress, I have learned more as a writer in the past two months than I did in two years trying to push myself alone. You can apply using the link in the description down below and if I think you're a good fit, we'll get on a free call where we can discuss your writing and the details of the program. Now, let's get into the best lessons I learned from Neil Gaiman's Masterclass. Truth in Fiction Stories are fundamentally lies, Neil Gaiman says, yet they are perhaps the most useful tool to better understand the human condition. We are using lies. We're using memorable lies. We are taking people who do not exist and things that did not happen to those people in places that aren't. And we are using those things to communicate true things to kids. Fairy tales aren't true. Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be defeated. Gaiman tells this incredible story about walking and getting stung by wasps and running away, dropping his glasses at the site and only realizing that he had dropped his glasses the next day. And he hadn't felt that afraid when he was actually getting stung. He was more just in a panic kind of flight or flight response in that uh, situation. But the next day when he realized he had to go back to those wasps to find his glasses again, that's when he felt true fear. And in that terror, he understood that this was what his book, Coraline, was about. He now understood the key emotional experience that his story was grounded in. Knew that it was about the idea that dragons could be defeated. I knew that I was trying to tell kids that yes, you can face up to the things that scare you. Yes, you can deal with it. Yes, you can triumph. But it was at that moment that I understood that actually what I was just trying to say to them, the entire message of this book was being brave doesn't mean you're not scared. It means you're scared and you do the right thing and you do it anyway. 
With my own novels, I've really found that my writing comes alive the moment that I have this emotional epiphany. The moment that I understand what the core key emotion of my story is, the easier it becomes to understand my characters and develop my plots and figure out what my world and my setting should look like. It just makes everything feel so much more three-dimensional. It just makes everything feel like it matters. And that makes the writing easier and it makes the story better. So you might be wondering, how do I actually get to that place? The answer is that you have to be honest. All fiction has to be as honest as you can make it. And I realized that if you're going to write, if you're gonna be a successful writer, at least if you're gonna be the kind of writer who did the kind of stuff that I was gonna do, you had to be willing to do the equivalent of walking down a street naked. You had to be able to show too much of yourself. You had to be just a little bit more honest than you were comfortable with. When you can do this, your characters will be so much more relatable and empathetic. And that is really the key to hooking readers and creating a great story. Even if you've never directly gone through the things that your characters have gone through. So let's say, for example, you're writing a story about a bunch of characters trapped in this creepy haunted castle and a vampire is stalking them. Hopefully you've never had that exact experience in your own life, but perhaps you've had an experience where there was a school bully and they would just randomly bully you at different times of the day when you're going to school. And school for you would be this terrifying experience where you never knew when the attack was gonna come or how it was gonna come, so you were just constantly on edge. It's very different to that vampire story, but emotionally, it's the same experience, the same experience of not knowing where your enemy is gonna come from. And from that, you can ground your story about the vampires in this very personal emotional experience of you being bullied at school. You can draw from that and let it seep into your characters. Sources of inspiration. If you ask an author, where do you get your ideas? The author will probably mock you. Authors have jokes and they'll say, oh, from a little idea of the month club. This is because authors are scared and we don't know. And because we don't know and because we're scared, we lash out and we make you feel like you asked a stupid question. You didn't. You asked the big question. You asked the real question. Where do you get your ideas is a real question. So where does Neil get his ideas from? First of all, he discusses the importance of an open mind. A good writer doesn't think about her influences merely in the same genre that she writes, but she also thinks about it in terms of songs and poetry and plays and art and maybe different countries and experiences that she's had in her life. But the most important thing that you can do is open yourself to everything. Always be exposing yourself to new experiences, to new adventures, to new perspectives. And these new sources can give you inspiration to fill up your creative well. Like I said in my video about writing like Stephen King for 30 days, I really firmly believe that to be an interesting writer, you have to live an interesting life. Now, all that is very high level. Luckily, Neil also gives some very concrete tips for finding inspiration. And his very first one is to subvert the familiar. One of the things that's really fun as a writer is subverting expectations. What you're doing here is you're looking at a story that you're really familiar with, and then you're just trying to see it from a different angle. Gaiman gives a great example of this with Snow White. But reading it the thousandth time, I stopped and thought, you know, it's a pretty strange story. I mean, what kind of person has hair as black as coal, lips as red as blood, skin as white as snow, and gets to lie in a coffin 
for a year and then get up and they're fine again. And what kind of prince rides past on a horse and says, hey, that girl in that coffin, she's gorgeous. Can you bring her back to my castle? Because that's kind of weird too. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at something, which is a story that I've looked at a thousand times. As if I've never seen it before. And I'm going, well, this, if you view it from over here, you're telling a story about a vampire princess and a necrophile prince. I love this example. I really think Neil is the best modern fairy tale writer out there. So seeing how he kind of draws from these familiar tales and then changes and warps them through his own lens is really, really cool. His next tip is to make up stories with the people around you. Um, I highly recommend train carriages, underground carriages, bus journeys, anything where you have a bunch of disparate people that you don't know. Then look at them. Throw all of you into a situation you've never been in before and start wondering, well, okay, what would this person do? I had a massive smile when he talked about this because it's something I've been doing for years. Uh, just the other day, I was out for dinner with my parents and we were at the beach and there was a guy sitting out on the beach just at a table on the sand looking out into the sunset. Very grizzled guy, like gruff, kind of almost looked like ex-military type with an eye patch. And just looking at him, I couldn't stop my mind from racing and thinking about what was his story? Like, how did he come to sit here? What is he thinking about? What's he planning to do next? People are so much more interesting and strange and more unlikely than anything that you could make up. Finding your voice. When you're a writer starting out, the idea of your voice, of your style is huge. Um, you want to know what your voice is. You don't really know. Neil says that style is actually the things that you're doing wrong. It's the little imperfections, the little ticks you have that make your story unique and interesting. That a writer's voice, which is huge, which is important, which is actually the thing that the reader responds to more than anything else. The end of the day is a result of getting to the point where you discover this is what you sound like. When you start out as a writer, it's so tempting to be stressed about your voice and about your style. I know a lot of new writers feel this pressure to understand what their voice is, to create this unique tone for their writing. But I would almost argue this is a waste of time. For me, style isn't something that you actively create. It's something that you organically discover through the process of just writing and producing a ton of work. And I think that's actually quite liberating to know if you are a new writer. Chuck Jones said you have a million bad drawings in your pencil and your job as an artist is to get them out so the good ones can follow and I think as a writer and especially as a young writer your job is to get the bad words out the bad sentences out the the stories that aren't any good yet and you don't ever get them out going, I'm going to write a really bad story now. I, I just have to get this out. You think it's a great story. You think it's a great idea. You think it's good at least, but the most important, and it may be, but the most important thing 
It's just, you get it out. When I was 15 and I was starting out on my very first book, I heard this idea that you need to write a million words to become a good author. Maybe that would have depressed some people, <laughs> but it actually really motivated me. It made me realize that this was a skill, and just like practicing a sport or a musical instrument, it was something that I could get better with, as long as I was willing to stick around and keep putting in the reps. And after you've written, 10,000 words, 30,000 words, 60,000 words, 150,000 words, a million words. You will have your voice because your voice is the stuff you can't help doing. Oh, and if you're curious, after doing this for about 10 years, I'm 25 now, I started my first book when I was 15, I've just recently passed the million word mark with my own writing. And you can see that there's a lot of novels here that didn't make it, or at least haven't made it yet. And that's okay, I actually hope that it can inspire you to see how long I had to slog away at this thing to finally get some results. But the most important thing is just writing. And you finish things if you can. I have, um, up in my attic, Probably a hundred, two hundred, first pages, first two pages, maybe even the first three pages of things I wrote between the ages of 16 and 20. It wasn't until I was probably about 20, maybe 21, that I realized that actually I had to start finishing them. And at that point, the the improvement became, to use a word Terry Pratchett used to love using, quantum. You learn more from finishing a failure than you do from writing a success. Developing the story. So how do you turn your ideas into a great story? Neil starts by saying that your first aim, maybe the most important thing you should be trying to do, is simply focusing on creating a story that gets readers to keep turning the pages and doesn't leave them feeling cheated at the end. And then what happened? And those words, I think, are the most important words there are for a storyteller. So anything you can do to keep people turning the pages is legitimate. The main thing that you have to do is to care. Because if you don't care what happened, nobody else will. Suspense is the foundational skill that underpins everything else you're doing in a novel. If you can't develop suspense, it doesn't matter how good everything else is because readers aren't gonna feel compelled to read through. Okay, so now that we've actually established that base, how do you actually begin the process of developing your story? One of the best things that you can do is just sit there. I like to do it by hand if I can. I will take out a notebook, and I will write down everything I know. This is not an essay for people to read. This is me telling myself right up front just everything I know. The process of writing is a really important one because even in the process of writing anything simple, your mind starts to notice connections. And connections are what fiction is made out of. There have been so many times where I've had a flash of inspiration, an idea, perhaps for a current book or for something I want to write in the future, and I've just grabbed you know, my notebook and I've jotted down what I thought was going to be one sentence, but very quickly it turns into an entire page of ideas that maybe took me in directions that I wasn't even expecting to go in in the first place. 
writing your ideas down in a notebook, especially doing it by hand seems to be really effective at this for some reason, is not just a process of recording your ideas. It's actually a process of developing your ideas. Stories begin with ideas. And the idea can be very, very small. It can be a feeling, it can be an image, it can be something that you, it can be something your story begins with, it could be something your story ends with, it could be some moment from the middle, it could be two characters interacting. But is that initial spark enough to start writing your story? I've been writing long enough that I have a certain amount of faith in myself and I simply and, and I think faith in yourself is something that you need. Personally, I think there's no such thing as a good or a bad idea when it comes to a story because the idea is really only 5% of the process. The real majority of writing is the actual process of writing, of how you execute on that idea. A mediocre idea, executed well, executed to completion, is always going to be the best idea in the world that never gets written down. Just start writing. Very often, something that I'm going to want to know before I begin is what it's about. And I'm probably really not going to find that out until it's over, until I sit there and reread it. And I go, what was this about? But I need to have some kind of idea of what it's about going in. And, and that isn't plot. If anything, I, I guess you could call it theme. For me, the moment when my story really unlocks is when I discover the theme. I define theme as a moral argument about the correct way to exist in the world. So I wouldn't call something like love or death my theme. I would actually define theme in terms of a sentence like the following. Redemption is possible through sacrificing the self for an ideology that is bigger than your own desires. And in fact, that is the very theme for my space fantasy novel, Across the Broken Stars. I actually had that theme written down on this one page document that I kept next to me the entire time I was writing this book so that I was constantly reminding myself that is what this story is about. Go give it a read if you wanna see how I explored that idea. So here's Neil discussing the theme for Neverwhere, which is this story about a subterranean shadowy world set beneath London called London Below. I was just going, okay, I want this to be about the people who fall through the cracks. I wanna write about homelessness. I want to write about the mentally ill. And I want to do that in a way that anybody reading it is going to enjoy it. Theme shouldn't be about preaching to readers. It should be about exploring an idea you're passionate about from all different sides and angles. The last thing Neil says in this session is the importance of giving your characters clearly defined wants and desires. It's the only question that opens the door to what do you do next? If you get stuck, you can ask yourself what your characters want. And that is like a flashlight. It shines a light on the road ahead and lets you move forward. He gives a very good practical example of how you can do this to actually generate plot. Just have two of your best characters and have them figure out what they want and have them want things that are mutually exclusive and then set them off on their quest. 
This is funny because it's exactly what I've done for my current novel, Kingdom of Dragons, which I am editing the second draft of at the moment. The story is set in this magical military academy for dragon riders, and my two protagonists are called Rovan and Zora. Rovan comes from this foreign country and he despises the dragon riders because a dragon killed his best friend. So he's stolen a dragon egg and he has infiltrated the academy as a dragon rider to try to destroy it from the inside. Meanwhile, Zora hates the country that Rovan is from because their emperor killed her father. And so she's joined the Dragon Rider Academy to get her vengeance. But throughout the story, Robin and Zora grow closer together and they start to actually become friends, which leads to all sorts of interesting conflict and tension throughout the narrative. And you know that only one of them can have the thing. Whatever the thing that they want is, if they succeed, the other one fails and vice versa. Short stories. Neil says that short stories were really useful for him starting out. In the beginning, they were a great way to begin to learn my craft as a writer. The hardest thing to do as a young writer is to finish something, and that was what I was learning how to do. Short stories give you this very rapid feedback loop, which is so essential to leveling up quickly when you are starting out as a writer. It's actually something that I mentioned in my video about how to achieve your writing goals this year. When it comes to actually writing short stories, Neil has kind of three foundational principles that he uses. The first idea he got from Roger Zelazny, who says that you should imagine your short story as the last chapter of a novel. He said, oh, my best short stories are the last chapter of a novel I didn't write. And I loved that. I really took that to heart. Because when you're writing short fiction, what you want, whether it's true or not, is to feel like these characters didn't just start to exist the moment the story began. You want to know they've all been in existence all along. And now we are at the point of heightened emotion his second principle is that only one thing has to happen in your short story. The short story really only has to be about one thing. And then his third and final tip for short stories is that the fewer words you can use, the better. The first place that I start is just with the idea that instead of being paid by the word, I am paying by the word. To sum up his attitude towards short stories, I think Neil really sees them as a fantastic place to quickly increase your skill as a writer and to develop your craft which is how I see them as well. Short fiction is a fantastic place to learn your craft as a writer. Dialogue and character. So people talk when writing fiction about character, and they talk about dialogue, and they talk about them as if they're two different things. And they are two different things, but they're two different things that actually amount to the same thing. And they're like the, the two legs that a character needs in order to walk. Neil sees dialogue and character as these interwoven concepts. For him, figuring out how someone talks is actually the best pathway into understanding that character. Because dialogue is character. The way that somebody talks, what they say, how they say it, is character. So how do you actually write good dialogue that develops character? Neil shares six key ideas to help you write better dialogue that develops your characters. The first is to practice compression and economy. When he was younger, Neil Gaiman used to be a journalist and he would often record on his little recording device, you know, 10,000 word interviews with various people that he then had to figure out how to compress and kind of shrink down to a 2,000 to 3,000 word article while still retaining the kind of speech patterns and the style of the person that he was interviewing. And it was that economy 
um, that actually I think looking back on it, that was the most useful thing for going out there and writing fiction. The second idea is to listen to your characters. The process of writing good dialogue is a listening process. Your job as a writer is to figure out what your characters are saying. Not on the surface level up here, but rather what is hidden beneath, what is unspoken, the subtext of your character's words. Understand this subtext and your dialogue up here will become far more compelling. The third idea is to trust your characters. Characters, if you are writing them, become part of you and become separate from you at the same time. You have to know your characters well enough to know, would they do this? And sometimes they won't. And at that point, mostly I'll trust them. This is maybe tricky to wrap your head around if you're a new writer, but it's incredibly important to know what your characters want and to not force them down a path that they won't naturally want to pursue. The fourth idea is to find the part of yourself that is the character. You are going into yourself and you have to not be afraid of yourself. You have to be willing, if you're writing a murderer, if you're writing a bad person, to go and find that part of you that is the bad person. The fifth idea is to do just enough research. You're also going to need to write about people you don't know. You're gonna to need to write about people from cultures you don't know. You're going to write about people with professions you do not understand. And for them, my advice to anybody starting out is just go find them, go talk to them. However, he also warns against using research as a way to procrastinate on writing. You don't want to be trapped in the vortex of research at the expense of actually producing your novel. The sixth and last idea is to give your characters funny hats. When you have a lot of characters wandering around, you need to help your reader. You need to just give your reader a hand. And one of the ways that I've always liked to do that is what I call funny hats. By funny hats, I don't actually literally mean you have a character wear a funny hat. What I do mean is you give your character something that makes that character different from every other character in the book. You want readers to easily distinguish characters from each other. That's basically what he's saying here. World building. The joy of world building in fiction is honestly the joy of getting to play God. Neil's first tip is to smuggle in details from your own life. The urge is to take places from fiction. Look at the world outside your window. Get out there onto the streets. Look at places. Think about the places that you've been and then change them. Make them bigger, make them smaller. What would that school be like? if it covered an entire city? What would that school be like if it was an island? What would that school be like if it was floating in the sky? This is something I've done a lot with my stories. I've been really lucky to travel quite a bit and that's given me a tremendous wealth of inspiration to draw from with my own writing. Combine that with my interest in architecture because I used to be an architect, means that I'm often creating these interesting fantasy worlds and settings with unique and hopefully exciting cities for characters to explore. For instance, the Thunder Heist here is set on a floating city which is made of 
uh, thousands of ships all kind of lashed together and it's floating on a monster infested sea. And I can link that directly back to where I stayed on these floating houseboats and pontoons that were anchored near the horizontal waterfall in Broome back in 2016. Every little detail that you can steal from the world and smuggle with you into your fiction is something that makes your world more real for your reader. Neil's next idea is that moments of reality create credibility. Anything you can say that makes them feel real, that buttresses them, that gives credibility, you then assume that the author could tell you everything else. It goes off in all directions, but that one little moment of reality, that one thing that seems to be absolutely true, gives credence and gives credibility to all of the things that you don't say. Like Brandon Sanderson mentioned in his writing lectures, it's all about going deep on one specific aspect of your world. So for example, you might really figure out the nuances of your world's weather patterns. Then this actually gives you more freedom to be vaguer with the other parts and readers will just assume that even though you're not describing them in the same detail, you know the same amount of detail and depth as you do with your weather patterns. Neil's next idea is to research using real-world locations. Before I started writing the graveyard book, I visited a lot of graveyards, and I knew that I needed things from graveyards, so I needed to go and look at them. So my world-building exercise was just visiting graveyards, visiting Stoke Newington, uh, graveyard, Abney Park, which had a glorious sort of ruined chapel in the middle. And looking at that chapel and going, right, I'm going to have you. You're in my story. And wherever I would go, I would just visit the local graveyard um, and see if there was a little thing that I could take and put into the graveyard that was in my head. Descriptions. Maybe one of Neil's biggest strengths is his lyrical, evocative prose. He has this real knack for describing things in unexpected and delightful ways. So I was really excited to see what his advice would be like for actually describing things in a novel. The words are the most important things that we have. The words are what we're doing everything with. His advice for writing descriptions comes to three main points. The first is to tell readers as much as you like. I do not hold with anybody who says no exposition, no description. You describe what needs to be described. You explain what needs to be explained. You are God. When you are writing, you are absolutely in charge. You can do whatever you like. The thing is, sometimes it's easy to tell people, hey, this is just what it is. And then you just get on with telling your story. There's no reason to show, don't tell, whatever that actually means. When you want to tell somebody, what a city looks like, tell them. There are no rules other than tell a great story, tell it as best you can. His next tip is to focus on one memorable and specific detail. Quite often, there's not much need to describe things that people are familiar with, like how a character's hair might look or how a dragon might look if you're writing fantasy. These are things that people tend to know. But what Neil tries to do is something else. So what I'll try and tell them while I'm describing is what makes this a little different? What makes this memorable? 
So in my own book about dragons, Kingdom of Dragons, I assume that most readers know what a fantasy dragon looks like. So instead of describing kind of the whole beast, I just focus on really one specific detail. For example, Zora's dragon Dapple has these kind of black scales that scar his back. And that's kind of an interesting detail that I zoom into and describe. It can be a fairly small image, but it can be a tree that looks like a clutching hand trying to grab the clouds. And suddenly you know why that tree is different to all the other trees. And it evokes emotion. And that's the other lovely thing that you can do if you can with description is do more than one thing at the same time. His last tip is to appeal to the senses. When you're writing a description, um, the most important thing is to find something. Find one thing that is memorable, one thing that's important, one thing that's different. And then look at that using a sense. Writers tend to overemphasize sight and sound. And really, a lot of new writers tend to not use many descriptions that use smell, taste, or touch, which is a shame because those three senses can sometimes be the most evocative and interesting senses to explore in a moment. You need to invoke whatever is going to be strongest. Genre. Mastering genre is all about knowing what readers expect from your story. Look at it from a perspective of Reader expectations. What are they coming to this for? What will they feel cheated if they do not get? Once you figure out your genre, whether that's fantasy or sci-fi or romance or thriller or crime or something else, then go ahead and list the expectations readers might have of this genre. Reader expectations are a lovely thing to play with. I find the TV Tropes website a actually fantastic resource for kind of figuring this out. For example, if I was to write a noir story, I can look up the noir page on TV Tropes and I can see what kind of standard characters and plots and settings one might associate with this genre. And then once I've done that, I can decide which ones to accept, which ones to ignore and which ones to subvert. Tropes are neither good or bad. I think a lot of People try to signal their intelligence and their critical credentials by looking down on tropes, but tropes are really just tools. And like any tool, they can be used for good or they can be used for bad. It all depends on what you want to do with your story. You don't actually ever have to give people the thing they want in the way they're expecting it. They actually always like it if you give them what they want in a way that they're not expecting. The important point though is that it's always good to know what the rules are before you break them. Dealing with writer's block. People love to talk about writer's block and they love to talk about writer's block because it sounds fancy, it sounds like a real thing. It also sounds like something that you can do nothing about. And that of course isn't true. I think writer's block is a myth. There you go, I said it. Um, I think we tend to mythologize writing and we make it into this mysterious and magical process. But I think it's actually much better to view writing as this mundane act of labor. That doesn't actually make it any less special. The world's grandest cathedrals are made by people simply laying one brick at a time. And I think that's actually a really good attitude to adopt because when you stop viewing writing as this magical thing where sometimes the gods come down and they bless you with inspiration and other times they curse you instead, when you stop viewing it that way and you start viewing it as this mundane act of labor, it's actually far more empowering because then you can realize 
Okay, I'm feeling stuck. It doesn't mean the gods have cursed me. It just means that maybe something isn't working with my story, or maybe I need to try a different approach. First thing to do if you're actually stuck, don't just sit there staring at the page, staring at the screen, staring at your keyboard, being angry. Go do something else. For me, I find that exercise is the best way for me to kind of refocus and to clarify my thoughts if I'm stuck on something with my writing. Two, come back pretending you have never read it before. The old pretend you have never read it before technique. Start at the beginning and read it through. Very, very often, once you do that, where the story should be becomes obvious. Where you went off the rails becomes obvious. And you did go off the rails. The problem is always earlier. Problems always earlier than the place where, you know, the car goes off the road and now you're stuck there. I've always seen writer's block as a sign that uh, something isn't working with my story. So in this sense, it's actually a really useful signal to tell you that you need to change something. Nobody but you ever gets to read your first draft. Nobody but you ever needs to know that you got stuck. Neil's next tip is to give yourself a deadline, which sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but it's really useful. He talks about how only giving himself 24 hours to write his short story, How to Talk to Girls at Parties, actually motivated him to finish the book after, finish the short story rather, after several false attempts. I went down to the bottom of the garden with a blank notebook and came back that evening with how to talk to girls parties written. Deadlines are a big part of my own process, especially when I'm outlining. It's easy to just feel like I'm never gonna figure it out and that I could just spend months and months and months figuring out this outline. But what I like to do is once I've got my outline to maybe 60, 70% of the way there, I tell myself, Jed, you have to start writing the first draft in one week. So you can do as much outlining as you want, but in one week you have to start. And for whatever reason, this almost always galvanizes my brain to fill in all the missing pieces in my outline that I might've been struggling with. And by the time it's one week later and I'm getting ready to start, the outline is good to go. Editing. The first thing you do as a writer is you explode. You explode like a bomb explodes. You explode onto the page. The story is an explosion and you get to the end of it. And once it's done, then you get to walk around it and you get to look at the shrapnel and the damage it did. And you get to see who died and you get to see how it worked. And that's the point where you get to think about it. Neil's first tip for editing is to pretend that you've never read the story before. To do this, he'll try to spend time away from the project. What I do if I can is I leave it and then maybe a week later, maybe 10 days later, print it out, come back to it and try and pretend and pretend like a method actor, pretend like this is the most important thing in the world to me, pretend that I've never read it before and I know nothing about it. One of the things I really love in my story coaching program is the ability to give super detailed feedback on my client's stories. And that's been super useful for sharpening my own eye as a writer and an editor. I had one moment where I read three pieces by three different clients and they were all making the exact same mistake where their prose was too abstract and not concrete enough. So seeing these patterns between it is really useful for kind of sharpening my own writing abilities and reminding myself not to make these same mistakes. I will make notes in the margin of anything that doesn't work for me. 
as a reader. And you try and pretend that you as a writer and you as a reader are two different people. Neil's next tip is to ask yourself, what was this actually about? And that's the most important question that you can ask yourself. Because the difference between what you're going to do in the first draft and the second draft can often be tiny. But it's the most important draft is getting to that second draft. And the question, what is this about, is what gets you from the first draft to the second draft. Because what you're then doing is you're going, okay, in which case what I have to do now is buttress what the story is about and eliminate those places where I'm writing stuff that isn't what the story is about. That helps you decide what stays in and what you should strike out. Applying this advice to my own book, Kingdom of Dragons, as I edit it at the moment, I have realized that I need to kind of focus my narrative a bit more and strip out a couple of chapters that are told from point of view characters who don't really matter and aren't as important to the story as my two main leads. The process of doing your second draft is a process of making it look like you knew what you were doing all along. Neil's next tip is to take feedback wisely. When people tell you that something doesn't work for them, that they're right, it doesn't work for them. And that is incredibly important information. You also have to remember that when people tell you what they think is wrong and how you should fix it, that they're almost always wrong. This is really important when you're getting feedback from beta readers rather than professional editors. Professional editors, generally speaking, they know what they're doing. They probably will be prescriptive with their advice and it's good to follow it. But when you're just getting feedback from general readers, I think it's really useful to just focus on asking them the following four questions. What was awesome? What was boring? What was confusing? What didn't you believe? Big shout out to Mary Robinette Cowell for coming up with those questions. My biggest takeaway. All right, that has been awesome to be able to share these notes from Neil Gamer's class with you. Now, let's get to my number one biggest takeaway from all five hours of his lectures. And I think it would have to be Neil's mindset when it comes to rejection. You are always going to be rejected. As a writer, you're always going to be rejected. And that's basically healthy. You need the humility enough to know that you don't know yet. And on the other, you need an arrogance that is normally only seen in sort of seven-year-old boys. You need that conviction um, that you are brilliant, that this is brilliant, that this is the greatest idea that anybody's ever had, and that by writing it, you will set the world on fire. Because that is the thing, that is the engine that is gonna get you through the stuff that actually needs to be written. Especially when you start out, getting this balance right is supremely important. Neil then goes on to say that there are really only two ways to deal with rejection as a writer. One of which is you go down, you get sad, you put the thing away, you stop writing, you go and get a real job, go and do something else. And the other is a kind of crazed, attitude that actually the most important thing now is to write something so brilliant, so powerful, so good, nobody could ever reject it. 
A huge thank you to Neil Gaiman for creating such an awesome masterclass. And for those of you who are alongside me in pursuit of great stories, to you I say, keep writing, keep striving.